This video is too long, but I could not cut it before we saw him smack the other one in the face. We had to have that. So what do you think? Why would we have this video if you've been here? Any ideas? What does this remind you of in terms of the text of Ecclesiastes and what the writer says about what life is like? Vanity, vanity. vanity. Yes, John, right? There's nothing new under the sun. The rivers keep going to the sea and the sea is not full, right? It's just like going around a hamster wheel. And I thought that was a pretty good image of what we have been talking about. And remember, we watched that video and the author told us the Hebrew word for that is hevel, which translates its life is like a smoke. You try to grab it and you just can't quite get a hold of it, you know, or it's an enigma. And some authors would translate that, life is absurd. We try to make meaning of it, and we just can't quite do it. And so at the end of last week, I presented from the text what I saw as three kind of maybe hiding places from that, or some respites, or some, um, some seeds of light coming at the end of the tunnel. And the first one was things have meaning when they're in their season. So we remember we talked about that passage. Now, don't get your hopes up too much about that, because I did a little more reading this week, and it may be a little complex, more complex than I thought. But that was one. Things have meaning when they're in their season. Second one, since this is our lot, this kind of absurdity, some things might be better than others. So the author says maybe wisdom is better than folly in some circumstances, things like that. And then the third one, um, in the midst of this absurdity, without dismissing that idea at the end, he says maybe we could enjoy our life, which is what the focus of a lot of this talk is going to be about tonight, and love God and keep his commandments. So a little bit back to the traditional narrative of the Old Testament in terms of wisdom literature, but not exactly. So we have to kind of go back to that first respite and, and investigate it a little bit more. Um, and we're going to do that through several things. Um, this is an interesting talk. It, it ended up having a reference to subversive embroidery, so that's coming up. Be ready for that. We look at some uh, uh, podcasts, some ancient fairy tales, so we've got a lot of ground to cover, so buckle your seatbelts, gird up your loins, if you will. Um, I have to report that this passage, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 14, which we heard in the special song last week, to everything, turn, 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 there is a season, could be kind of a little more complex than I thought. So I'm going to read it to you. It's a little bit long, but it's, I think, worth the time. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 14, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. A time to scatter stones, because we all know that season. What season is it? It's stone scattering season. Um, and a time to gather them. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search, and a time to give up. That Maybe that's a sermon. It's time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So 
an interpretation that I offered last week, because there are many ways to look at this, is that in wisdom literature sometimes we go looking for, here's the right thing to do, like looking for an answer to our ways that we want to approach life. And often in wisdom literature, this happens not only in this kind of counter-narrative, but also in the Proverbs, you get two different sets of advice right next to each other, right? Um, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. Just right beside each other. And you're like, what is this about? And some interpreters would say, well, it depends, right? There's a wise time to do answer a fool according to his folly, and there is a not wise time to do that. And wisdom is knowing the difference of those times. And so that's one way, I think, to think about this passage. All these things, there's a wise time to do. Um, but there's also unwise time to do these things. That's nice, and it, you could look at it that way, I think. You could, and, and some commentators do. I read another commentator this week. That's what gets you into trouble. You know, you give people books to read, then they just get all confused. So um, this, I think, makes a little more sense in the context because of what comes next. So let me read what comes next. So if this were a respite, you would expect some more comforting words maybe at the end, but that's not what happens. The author says, what do workers gain from their toil? Oh, no. We're back to the same refrain, and it gets worse. I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. Hmm. So, uh, Pete Enns, in his commentary on this passage, stated that this list is not a set of choices that we have to make. Not like, there's a time for you to choose to um, weep, and there's a time for you to choose to dance, an appropriate time. Instead, he would say, it's just a wide range of things that happen to us. Or, as this author kind of seems to state, that God does that God brings to us. And in other words, this passage may be about, Pete N says, the absurd inevitability of what life brings. All these things are going to happen. There's all these things that are going to come and happen in your life. And then what do we gain from all of this? Makes kind of sense at the end of that passage if you view it that way, right? And then this part, which I think is pretty interesting. I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. And this next passage, we like stitch on pillows, out of context. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, which is only half of the sentence. Have you seen that stitched on a pillow? Do we have that? Yes. Right? So, but that doesn't seem to be really what that means here, right? So, um, as an aside, I have been aware speaking of embroidery, of this movement of kind of subversive embroidery. Have you seen this? Uh-huh, yes. And so I've seen this at, a cra at craft shows. It's stuff like this. This is the tame version, okay? <laughs> I didn't bring you the dirty embroidery, which is also available to you. Um, I love this. And while I was looking at the subversive embroidery, I found out there's a whole history of... Um, of subversion within embroidery and women's work. Okay, that's a whole different topic. I think that could be a series. Get ready for a subversive embroidery at 425. Um, anyway, 
that's another night. But I had to tell you that because how could I not tell you that? So I don't, I'm not sure though that he makes everything beautiful in its time and he sets eternity in the human heart is a really sweet and um, tender sentence here. I think maybe it's something like, uh, and this is what Pete Enns says about it, that the translation of the word beautiful here is maybe not the best. That word is often translated appropriate or fitting. So God does things when he thinks it's the right time to do them, might be another way to say that. And then, in addition to that, all these random things to us, um, he gives us these tasks in this time, but he has set eternity in the human heart. And for a writer in this time period, when we hear eternity in the context of, you know, modern Christianity, we might think heaven or hell or afterlife. This writer may or may not have had that perspective. There were many, many, many views of afterlife in ancient Hebrew culture, and some no view at all. And there's no conversation really about the afterlife in this book. That's a conversation that's in other parts of the scripture, but not in this one. But often when a person said eternity, they were really just talking about a long time, like a long time past, a long time forward, because they would say, may this king, may he, may he reign for everlasting. And they didn't mean really, you know, like all time and beyond time. They meant a long time. So God has put, this author is saying, I know this is roundabout, we're going to get there though. Um, he has put this, ability for humans to look forward and backward in time to try to understand the absurdity and yet the verse says um, we can no one can fathom what god has done from beginning to end so he calls that a burden that has been placed in the lives of humans does that make sense kind of that interpretation of that passage so um I think that's interesting. But then, I don't think it's a respite, though. I don't think it's a respite from the absurdity part. But the next part, I think, is. So the author says um, at the end of that passage, and this is the title of the message tonight, is Eat, Drink, and Be Merry? Question mark. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him, this author says. So uh, it's like this is, the world's going to be like this. This is our lot, but here's what we can do. We can be happy. We can do good. We can enjoy our relationships. We can enjoy our work. This comes back five or six times in this book. It's like a refrain. Maybe this is what we'll do. Maybe this is what we'll do. Um, and there's uh, a, a, a one time it comes back and it says, enjoy, enjoy, this passage says, enjoy your wife that God has given you, which I think is kind of beautiful. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that but first i want to go back to the video last part of the video that we watched last time that was kind of an overview of ecclesiastes we looked at the beginning part and this is that 
uh, video kind of giving us the overview of the big ideas in the last part of Ecclesiastes. So let's watch that one. The teacher acknowledges the ideas from Proverbs that living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, that these have real advantages. On the whole, life will probably go better for you. See, but the problem is that even living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, they're heavily too, because they don't guarantee a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's just too many exceptions, and so even wisdom is a hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma. Wisdom doesn't work the way you think it should all of the time. So what's the way forward in the midst of all this hevel? And here, paradoxically, the teacher discovers the key to the true enjoyment of life under the sun. It's accepting hevel. It's acknowledging that everything in your life is totally out of your control. About six different times at some of the bleakest moments in his monologue, the teacher talks about the gift of God, which is the enjoyment of simple, good things in life, like friendship or family, a good meal or a sunny day. You can't control these things. You're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I come to adopt a posture of total trust in God, it frees me to simply enjoy my life as I actually experience it, not as I think it ought to be, because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel, hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly hevel. And so the teacher's words come to a close. Right here at the end, the author speaks up again, and he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, the teacher's words are very important for us to hear. He likens them to a shepherd's staff with a goad, a pointy end, which might hurt when it pokes you. But he says the teacher is trying to poke you to get you to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom. The author then warns us that you can actually take the teacher's words too far, and you could spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer life's existential puzzles. Don't try, he says. You'll never get there. And so instead, the author offers his own conclusion, and it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. And so the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge your false hopes and remind you that time and death make most of life completely out of your control. But what gives life true meaning is the hope of God's judgment, the hope that one day God will clear away all of the hevel and bring true justice to our world. And it's that hope that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God, despite the fact that I remain puzzled by most of life's mysteries. And that's the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. So this idea that this contrast between the two ideas that are presented in Ecclesiastes, one being, if you do good things, good things happen to you, and if you do bad things, bad things happen to you. So that's one kind of wisdom teaching. And then this alternative that Ecclesiastes offers, which is not all the time, it doesn't seem to work like that. Um, this is present in other types of literature and in other types of moral teaching, which I find really interesting. So I think that probably if you were going to try to predict one element that will probably be in a lot of my talks at 425, it's going to be a podcast recommendation. <laughs> and that's true tonight, too. And actually, I got this one from Chris Roberts. Uh, I listened to this podcast, but I hadn't heard this uh, episode. And after uh, 
425 last Thursday, he came up and said, you have to listen to this latest episode. Does anyone listen to Malcolm Glidewell's Revisionist History podcast? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, a few, good. So um, Malcolm has been doing this series. He's actually been deconstructing some Disney movies, particularly <laughs> The Little Mermaid, which is based on an ancient fairy tale. And the theme of the podcast has been this contrast between those two kinds of moral teaching. And the um, one about good things happen to you if you're a good person, bad things happen to you if you're a bad person, we call that the um, poetic justice story. And uh, the most ancient fairy tales, which I found to be very interesting, European fairy tales, are not so, are not, not social justice, not poetic justice. They're also not social justice. Um, they are a different kind of story called traditional fairy tales. And in those stories, uh, good luck happens to people who are very foolish. Like Puss in Boots is an example of one of those stories. There's always this character who's kind of hapless and maybe even kind of bad that ends up just having all kinds of good things happen to them or ends up being the prince or something like that. Um, and they are also called fairy tale twist stories, stories in which heroes do not deserve their fate. And sometimes those kind of stories can teach us life can suddenly go from bad to good, completely unrelated to my merit, right? We like that. That actually sounds like grace. I, good things happen to me. It doesn't have anything to do with anything that I did. This is, I think, so interesting. So this was a collection of stories from that era. This guy, Charles Perrault, in the 18th century, after the Enlightenment, he kind of tweaked him. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. We're reasonable now. Bad things can't come from good, and good things can't come from bad. So I'm going to make all these poetic justice stories. Well... In an interesting twist at the end of this podcast, this guy did some neurological research on children listening to two different kinds of stories, the traditional stories and the poetic justice stories. And which one would you think that children might like best? Any ideas? I'll tell you, I was wrong. I thought they'd want the poetic justice stories, right? Because we want to, that's all Disney is all poetic justice, with some exceptions. Um, but they didn't. Children responded really positively to the twist where the bad guy or the uh, hapless guy wins at the end. And they talked about why this might be. Because if we, and children could express this as well, you know, if bad things happen, to me, I know bad things happen to me sometimes. What does that mean about me? I'm bad. I must be bad. And they don't like that idea. And so they like this idea, well, actually things just happen. And then we just try to make the best of them, right? So I think that's interesting. And I like the idea of things just happen. Things happen. And we get to have choices about how we respond to them. Maybe that's wisdom. That's a part of wisdom. I think that uh, this next image was pretty good for Bar Church. This is another, right, version of that refrain in Ecclesiastes 9. It says, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Always be clothed in white. 
which is, means celebratory, be dressed for a party, always be clothed in white, and anoint your head with oil. And you would anoint your head with oil if you were going to socialize, and you would not anoint your head with oil if you were mourning. Enjoy life, this is the one I was talking about, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life God has given you under the sun. For this is your lot in life, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where we are all going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So it is a little bit eat, drink, and be merry, but in a very wholesome way. So it seems like the author's just saying, just relax. Life is not logical. If you can't understand it, you might as well enjoy it. And I think this is a beautiful idea. Um, so as our... We turn to the end here. I have just a couple examples of this idea of engaging in our regular lives in a beautiful way. I was born and lived in Nebraska for part of my life. And there is a famous author from Nebraska, an American writer named Willa Cather. Has anyone ever heard of Willa Cather? If you're from Nebraska, you hear about Willa Cather all the time. And she has engraved on her tombstone this quote from her book, My Atonia. This is happiness, to be dissolved into something complete and great. And when we talk next week about some of the behaviors that may promote happiness, we're going to come back around to the social science. Uh, one of the kinds of behaviors that promotes happiness is this idea of just really being involved in whatever task you're doing. It has to do with attention. There's kind of an idea of flow. And musicians report that, and artists report that, and accountants report that. It doesn't have to be art. I, I think accounting is a kind of art, right, Barbie? And uh, yes. <laughs> uh, and she writes about this, so I have two quotes from her. Um, the world has a habit of being in a bad way from time to time, and art has never any contributed anything to help matters except escape. Hundreds of years ago, before European civilization had touched this continent, the Indian women in the old rock-perched pueblos of the southwest were painting geometrical patterns on the jars in which they carried water up from the streams. Why did they take the trouble? These people lived under the perpetual threat of drought and famine. They often shaped their graceful cooking pots when they had nothing to cook in them. Anyone who looked over a collection of prehistoric Indian pottery dug up from an old burial mound knows at once that the potters experimented with form and color to gratify something that had no concern with food and shelter. And so this idea of taking the, the everyday activities that we have, the work that we have to do, I think the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, whatever your hand finds to do it, do it with all your might. Last quote from Willa Cather, which I think is also very beautiful. And this, is, this um, next slide is Mary Cassatt. It's American artist, and the title is The Child's Bath. Aesthetic appreciation begins with the enjoyment of the morning bath. It should include all the activities of life. The farmer's wife who raises a large family and cooks for them and makes their clothes and keeps house and on the side runs a truck garden and a chicken farm and a canning establishment and thoroughly enjoys doing it all and doing it well contributes more to art than all the culture clubs. Often you find such a woman with all the appreciation of the beautiful bodies of her children, of the order and harmony of her kitchen, of the real creative joy of all her activities, which marks the great artist. 
So I think the author of Ecclesiastes and Willa Cather is saying to us, we're all great artists. We all have the opportunity in all of our daily activities to find joy and make meaning, even when we don't understand everything that's going on around us. So next week, to close out this series, we are going to talk about some of the words of Jesus about happiness, which we commonly call the Beatitudes, and you may have heard of, of him and that. And um, we are also going to talk a little bit about some of the social science around behaviors that may uh, support happiness. I also want to invite you to come on Sunday morning. We're planning something very special. We're calling it a tapestry of hope with lots of special music and singing together and readings, and it's going to be really, I think, kind of fun. So hopefully we'll see you there. Have a great week. <laughs>